Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Fright Night. She just goes... A little mad sometimes. Wolfman's got an heart. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. We have such sights to show you. They're all gonna love you. Hey, everybody. What's up? And welcome back to another episode of the Jersey Ghouls, where today we are ringing the bell, dusting off the old trapper keeper. Getting my pencils nice and sharpened because today we are going back to school. Oh, back to school, back to school to prove to dad that I'm not a fool. We're going, we're going in the way back machine, getting to the mm-hmm. hot tub time machine because we're trucking it back to 1920. That's right. And today with us is a very special guest, a person near and dear to our hearts here at the Jersey Ghouls, an oftentimes guest and an always bestie. Katie Moyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Good dog. Oh, oh. Um, Der Kaberstein, yeah, right? I'm so happy to be here. Gutenstein. It's not just 1920s, it's German 1920s, which is, you know, it's like my favorite, but even though it's it super is. depressing and like, <laughs> yeah, let's let's hop into the time machine to a place in between two world wars. <laughs> no, no, we we're, are... we're bringing the fun. We're bringing the fun tonight. <laughs> oh man, if this ain't a Debbie Downer episode, I don't know what is. But yes, we have decided that in honor of September, in honor to the magical return that is the beginning of a new school year, we are going to brush off the textbooks and bring in some of our smartest friends, like Katie and chat about the history of horror. And we are going to school ourselves. We're going to get an education. This, this oh, man, I made a really good, uh, smart impression there, didn't I? You did. It's it's the glasses. <laughs> Thank you. Especially when you reread. You can't see her when she's doing the thing where she like lifts them a little bit. Yeah, so we're going to discuss about the movies <laughs> and the German expressionists. And yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I was, I was, sad to realize that while these weren't the first ever horror movies and in fact the first ever horror movies were made back in 1896 um the first one being credited often as the house of the devil although it has a couple other different names um and then after that came like a kind of steady stream of horror movies that nobody gave two hoots about because it wasn't really until the 1920s when everybody kind of shot up and started paying attention to horror as a genre and it was absolutely in thanks to these two films, in my humble opinion. Tonight, we're going to be covering The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 
not a for our Italian Jersey people. That's not a shrimp or a seafood dish. You should know that now. I was all excited. I was like, Caligari, I love Caligari. A little gabagool, a little calamari, a little Caligari. And then I was like, wait a minute. That's that's not what that is. I was I was sad, you guys. But we're covering the cabinet of Dr. Caligari as well as the classic Nosferatu. I, I want to touch on, I think that it's fair to say, because yeah, there were horror, like there were movies with horror elements prior to these two movies. But when it comes to, I mean, so many tropes that we recognize now as horror and gothic horror didn't exist before Caligari. And that, I mean, that was uh, 1920. Um, and we're talking shadowy staircases, oddly shaped windows, monster falling in love with the woman and taking her to the rooftop. That goes 1920. Then we got a, a Murders at the Rue Morgue, which I was a little bit after that. And then we also have like King Kong, 1933, where, you know. Hey, hey, we're going to take it here. We're going. You're jumping ahead. Cesar started a lot of this stuff. Like, I mean, you can see the same things in Caligari as you can see in Frankenstein. And it, it that's really this incarnation of all these tropes. It starts here. So yeah, there was horror before this, but I, I don't think matter. the <laughs> genre started and what we know today started until these two movies. No, I 100% agree with you. I think that these movies really kind of begin horror as it becomes a, a, a genre and a trope I think if nothing else they definitely deserve the the like in our heads the first horror movies trope thing but yeah you know it's funny you said Frankenstein because man Dr. Caligari is such to me a, a, a perfect um like homage to Mary Shelley but we can dive into that later but let's first chat about the early 1900s because I think we would be remiss if we didn't just kind of Set the back tone here for German Expressionism. Now, Katie, I understand you you have a minor in German Expressionism. <laughs> um, I was uh, I was gonna get a minor in German. You would, you uh, would. but then my Expressionism took over, and I good never thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I applied I for it. My depression, crippling uh-huh. depression, and overworked burnout. Uh, <laughs> Man, that's expressionist right there. I gotta give it to you. Uh, I know. But here um, we here we are, delightfully wedged in between World War One and World War Two, and uh, Germany's in this weird place, which it's gonna stay for a long while. But it's 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 interesting because really, it's this precipice where you know films aren't they're not letting people watch films that are in German at this point. They're not really making any are in the shambles of World War One, and out come these amazing films, which are such a slap in the face to what everybody else all over the world is doing in the 1920s in filmmaking, which is instead of just externalizing and like shooting real life, they're taking it and making it super arty, super theatrical, and super like, you know, I don't know, for lack of a better term, expressionist. Like it was just such a beautiful, uh, to me, Caligari always slaps in that it is such a beautiful thing to look at. Like everything about it from the set design to the acting to to everything is such an homage to what people were kind of pushing back against realist uh, and realism in, in art and kind of really starting to explore what would become the existential dread that would really mark the rest of human existence forever. <laughs> Marissa, and rightfully so, Marissa had fears that I would not enjoy these movies. And Nosferatu I had seen. This is my first watch of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised. And I think part of the reason why I did enjoy it so much is for every reason that you just said, Marissa, because of its 
fantastical theatrical you know production value when you're seeing this movie that is exactly like you said it's not really shot in real life it's it's straight out of theater and someone who was a theater major I sit back and I can appreciate the painted sets the tricks they did with lighting to convey you know a certain mood or to change the time of day I mean you've got the Commedia dell'arte archetypes in this movie see wow yeah. my basement just flooded a little <laughs> you yeah no you i mean you say that again but slower no it's really because it is i think because it was so theatrical silent film in itself has to be because how else are you going to express without you know sound but uh I, I thought it was really well done i'm assuming it's not the first movie with a plot twist but i felt like there was like it is a the first movie it with is. a plot twist i was like it really kind of <laughs> hit you with a couple of plot twists and i was like god germany 1920 i wasn't expecting you to come through with a plot twist but they hit you with a couple of them and mm -hmm. like I, I, yeah like i said for me it was actually more like sitting and watching a play and i thoroughly enjoyed it that that moment um, when we're you know we're with uh, Francis and the old man at the beginning and um, you know his love walks by Jane walks by and he's like oh there she is and then he's like oh and look like as we're going into the flashback it 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 does a editing back and forth with pretty much Dr. Caligari on a stage and it looks like he is entering from a stage like coming down stage toward us. And Francis is framing it like, oh, look, can't you see him? He's right in front of us, which is kind of funny because first of all, yes, it does set up that what you were saying, that very theatrical quality, but it's also like it, it's an Easter egg to in the future when when we find out that he's actually a patient at this asylum, he's just pointing out the director of the asylum, right? Um, but in that moment, it has this very like vivid play. And yeah, I think that's a good that moment for me encapsulates a lot of what you're saying about the setup of the film and theatricality. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, it goes down in history as the first psychological horror, the first twist uh, ending kind of trope. And um, I gotta tell you, it's such a beautiful to me. And I think it rises, Caligari rises to the top of the pile in my head, because if we're talking about expressionism as just a simple, you know, um, attempt to present the external world in a way that manifests your internal fears and your internal, you know, internal feelings, I guess, and struggles for lack of a better term, there is no better film that does it for me than this one. And especially representing Germany's fears. I mean, cause listen, it, we're wedged in between the two world wars and there is no doubt that people are terrified of, of the idea of losing control of their selves, right? Nothing is scarier to them than like this totalitarian control that's gonna break down their neck and it's happening whether they know it or not. And I think this film speaks to the fact that I think they do know that it's coming. I also think the undeniably uncanny coincidence that a character named Caesar is the monster right before Hitler takes over is such a fascinating, like weird kind of like look into the future of the fact that there's these these things that are going to come along and you're going to lose your consciousness to it. You're going to lose control of yourself to it. You're going to lose your freedom to think. And I think a lot of that is going to, going to come in in World War II. And this film like almost captured that fear without even fully ever realizing that it was. The other thing that blows my mind about this film is as a psychology major, I'm so floored by just how perfectly 
delicately, I guess I want to say, this film explores how people were terrified by the thought of psychology at this point, right? Mm. Freud's just getting started in the early 1900s, and the whole world is starting to acquiesce to this idea that there is something like a psyche, there is something about our brains that we need to understand, but let's be honest, uh, mental institutions are terrifying, right straight through like the 80s, so, and I mean the 1980s here, and so I think this film not only captures the the government and the the societal fears, but it also plays with like psych psychology and like the ir the unreliable narrator in a way that is so fucking ahead of its time, you know. And this film just makes me gush and makes me realize why I love film as much as I do. Like, there's no better movie to nerd out to and start this with than this movie. But I'm gonna shut up. I'm gonna let you guys talk. <laughs> I think another first um that this movie has this might be the first uh documentation of the bro code because francis and alan at one point were like look we're both into this girl whoever gets her let's remain friends i'm like dude it's oh the first god. ever bro code <laughs> okay. oh my god that's so true and i gotta tell you hot take i i don't think alan was the first choice i think she would have went with the dude that died that's my hot take like she was she was mad <laughs> Yeah. Wait, Alan did die. Alan. Oh, Alan sorry. Switch yeah. it. Who is it? Francis. 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 Yeah. Francis yeah. No. I yeah. I, that's Alan. what I'm thinking. Is that? Yeah. I thought that too. Was that Francis was not the obvious choice there. Um, winner by default. You know. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, take a win where you can. <laughs> and uh, uh, on the list of firsts for Caligari too, it's also one of the first uh, framing stories or non-linear storylines. I mean, it would be 22 years before Citizen Kane really like just like it was noted for that and this was one of the first examples where we're we're not seeing the story in a linear way which that so that's another just you know plot twist um framing story bro code there are so many firsts in this movie it's so it's so true and there is a yeah. lot of parallels between orwell's style and this film um the director robert well, you're gonna help me pronounce it katie robert ween wiener wiener schnitzel weiner vine vine hunts vine 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 i did it Vine. Robert, let me take Vine. that again robert vin there we go i nailed it um and written by hans zonowitz and carl mayer and can i say it that i'm like like vin and mayer it's like all the times the R mayor. is super soft mayor mayor this, this is great because this is like all the times yeah, yeah, yeah. when I try to pronounce a Spanish word and Marissa makes fun of me for pronouncing <laughs> it like a white person no, so yeah. this I'm is getting, great now, now I can I can make fun of the Latino girl for pronouncing German words like a Latino. I'm getting my I'm getting my <laughs> I'm getting my comeuppance tonight that is for goddamn sure um <laughs> And yeah, though, it's funny because every time my, my husband actually studied German as well. And every time he says things, I'm always so impressed because I'm like, nine, what? Like that sounded so good. And I, no matter how hard I try, I just can't get like the, the inflection and the, it's, it's the Latino. I mean, it's like. Be angry. <laughs> I am. But so you would think this is, this is a language you would think I would organically be good at. That's but. right. I mean, because no, it's a different kind of angry. There's like, there's a very industrial kind of angry and then there's a fiery angry so you have the fiery angry well latina German is I mean, industrial yeah. angry. that's true you are a spicy meatball <laughs> i have a spicy meatball i am not a nine 
Duh. Um, you're, the the you're not sauerkraut. You're not sauerkraut, baby. I can't be. I don't know why. I try. I'm just German. Just doesn't come easy to me. Um, this was all. This is almost as hard for me as when we tried to do uh, uh, Japanese films, and I had to try and pronounce those as well. Um, pronunciation is not a strong suit. Uh, the other thing that um, I kind of want to just dive into with you guys and get your opinions on is this ending. We're talking about this twist and. And what, so are we to take it that he's just batshit? Are we to assume that there's something bigger and more evil and sinister at large here? I'm curious to get your guys' take on that. Well, like part of me in like my heart of hearts wants like the almost like butterfly effect kind of ending where yes, Francis is cuckoo bananas and he's in the asylum, but for some reason he has the wherewithal to sense the danger and the director really is a bad dude, but no one believes it because he's just surrounded by crazy people. So you're not going to believe the rantings of a crazy person. So mm-hmm. I want those kind of layers in it, but it might just be that Francis is cuckoo for Cocoa Pops. And I think to that point, that is a perfectly acceptable reading, especially when you think about Janowitz and Myers. The reason they wrote this was a unchecked governmental authority. So essentially at this point in Germany, um, the, the, the Spanish flu has effectively ended World War I, um, and which we get to talk about, I'm sure, during Nosferatu. Um, but uh, the World War I ends and Germany loses. And they are now not just under a brand new Weimar Republic, which was democratically elected by pretty much whoever was left over. Um, but they also have all of these sanctions and all of this. Uh, it, so they have all the shame coming down on them from the outside world, plus the shame of loss. And they're pretty much being told these are the things that you're allowed to do. And it caused lots of inflation, lots of depression. There was a lack of jobs. Um, and there was a lot of government oversight. Yes, government oversight. And she's like how um, dare you speak of government oversight so, so like you can you can actually see it in how all of the policemen and the bureaucrats like the guy who gives the permit guy at the fair everyone is sitting on these really tall stools they're looking down on everyone there's like there's symbols on the um you know in in unintelligible symbols of like government bureaucracy on the podiums. right and when um, they die we're happy they had it coming yeah, like, you know, we spend what two minutes with the clerk and we know he's a jerk and it's okay that he dies later um so it's that those kind of pieces where it's like it's almost like this slow indoctrination of yes dr kari is obviously a bad dude okay caligari might be a bad dude okay he's just using one of his patients oh wait caligari isn't the bad dude he's cra- we're the crazy ones for thinking that caligari but maybe he is the bad dude. So it's almost like this really slow inoculation into accepting that the people that are in authority do not have our best interest at heart. Oh my God. Yes. So beautifully put. You're right. Because that's exactly our, our fear, right? I mean, and that's, it's so perfect, even for modern times, even if we juxtapose it with what's going on, everything that's happening in, in America today, because it's true, right? Like we don't, we don't know anymore. We question our own sanity. And when you lose control of yourself and you lose your sense of right and wrong and crazy and sane, then you're, you're really just a victim and you're just the perfect, you're the perfect, uh, uh, you know, fodder for, for these governmental authorities. 
and for authoritarianism. And I guess that's what a perfect, beautiful way to look at what happens in, in the upcoming years in Germany. Man, that's deep. Yeah. The other thing yeah. guys that made me sad is that if it's not real, because like, I was like, man, how awesome is it that he gets to just join the police investigation? Like just full on, grab his Scooby-Doo badge, put it on and go nuts. And then I was like, oh no, he's just cray cray. <laughs> and yeah, then wouldn't you want to be able to jump in and help like the fray? Right, like how much fun? I have all the knowledge. Like, no. And like the way that the set pieces continue to more and more dramatically take on these like interesting angles and uh, like bonkers kind of symmetry to correlate with how much we're realizing they're just that how insane this world is it's just so beautiful it just makes me fall in love with everything that they did on this film very Um, obvious to me where there's a direct influence of where tim burton got his style because it almost seemed like you know there were certain scenes where i feel like you look and you can't find a single straight line but then there are other scenes where it's it's nothing but kind of straight line. Like it almost, it, it just it just really worked. I, especially when they're like running through like the wilderness or I guess like kind of the mountainous area, we'll call it. Um, I don't know. Like it, well, the, floor like, the, the floor looked like <laughs> bacon to me, but that's just because my fat ass was like, oh, bacon. Um, <laughs> but no, I really loved... I loved the art style of it. And like I said, someone who, I also love Tim Burton movies. So to me, it's very obvious where there's some influence because you can see it a thousand percent in this movie. I actually think that one of the most poignant things for me was that like uncertainty at the end. I read this, read a, I read an article, you guys, called 100 Years of the Cabinet of Caligari, Why We're Still Living in the Shadows by Alex Barrett. I highly recommend it. We'll link it in the notes. And it basically talks about how like this film is a human, like a a mirror image of the humiliation suffered by Germany throughout the early 1900s. And how as the film progresses, your own kind of like disgust and and, and tension and horror towards everything that's happened progresses. And he said, you know, like the, the biggest fear that this film really represents is that we don't know how it all ends. And that's the scariest part. And it was such a like, like shudder to think of how it does end for Germany at, once we plunge into World War II. But more importantly, like we don't know how, like I think we're in a moment in American history where I think we're wedged in between bad stuff. Like, and I mean, I'm, obviously the pandemic and everything else is still so scary, but I'm talking politically and on a global scale. I mean, it's, it's, it's the fall. It's the season of remembering September 11th. It's the season of kind of reflecting on everything we've learned in history. And I got to tell you, I think we are, I'm scared for where this is all going to end too. So this film really kind of hit deep for that for me as well. I've got a really interesting take on something. And I think this plays into it. What you were saying about kind of like not knowing where we're going and not um, having any ability or uh, agency. And I thought it was, it, it kind of goes back to, I think, um, Alan in the, in the movie, because something I thought was really interesting and I've always thought was interesting. And I didn't really get it until like this watch was, it's like, so he, he asked Cesar, well, well how long am I going to live? And Cesar is like, until uh, tomorrow morning. And it's like, how does he not, he's been asleep for 23 years. How does he know that? Um, but apparently there's this whole idea that like through sleep, he is able to have the knowledge of all, he has all knowledge, past, present, future. But then it also begs the question, because Alan becomes then a target when he asks that question. So it, it, it's kind of a monkey's paw thing. Like is, is 
asking when he is he going to die actually bringing on his death like do do you get what you wish for or be careful what you wish for and like bringing that back to the the like looking at how it, it's playing out in society or how we want to look at our society or how it played out in Germany is like oh well we wish these things we want these things um but are we are we sure what we're asking for are we are we ready to give up the things we need to give up to for these other things and I think that's that really hit me strongly in this one that kind of idea where Alan only died because he asked when he would die. I agree with that. Uh, my my take on that was he died because of his arrogance. Like of all the questions that you're going to ask, you're going to say, here's somebody who knows past, present, and future. And of all the questions you're going to ask, you're going to ask the one that pertains to you and you alone. And yeah. that was my take that he died. He, you know, I, I agree. Like he, if he hadn't asked that question, Alan probably gets the girl. Alan gets the ride off in the sunset. He gets the girl. But yeah, I took it as, as it, his arrogance is why he was targeted. Yeah. Hubris and all that jazz. <laughs> and I yeah. think that plays into like the, like being, um, having hubris and arrogance of like, you can take that on a larger level and be like, okay, like, do we think we know we're going in the right direction or do we really know nothing? Are we really just in the asylum? Ah, oh, so such a good point. It makes me, yeah. it like it gives me goosebumps when we have these conversations. They're so good. Um, <laughs> no, it's so true. Um, and I think that's, I, I think that's a great segue because I'm like chomping at the bit to tie this to Nosferatu because the one thing I keep going back to is this idea of like windows and mirrors and shadows and how like, you're right, we have so little actual grasp of like what we are and who we are that like these these German expressions films make me like question, they like matrix me every time when I watch these movies. I'm like, <laughs> who am I? Like Derek Zoolander, because at the end of the day, like the, the fear of how unreliable we are in our own lives and like how, how we're always just fearing the things we don't know, we don't understand, or our own sand, questioning our own sanity is so, just runs so well through both of these films. And again, I, I have to say that Caligari is my top, my, the top of the pile for me. I know Jackie, you said you don't feel that way. No, I, I like Caligari, but given the choice of these two, I like Nosferatu a lot more. I really, really like that movie. A good old-fashioned vampire movie. And I, I am on board for the good old-fashioned vampire. And I don't know if this was a first for Nosferatu, um, but I do ask that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis please have a seat because Greta Schroeder was really our first final girl. She embodied it. She's the first, because she's the one that defeated Nosferatu. Yep. She is the one who ended up saving the day. She lives. Greta Schroeder is our first final girl ever. Wow. What are I you need making to, a face for? I, 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 oh, I, just, I need to chew on that because she dies, doesn't she? She no. dies. Yeah, she dies, buddy. She gives her life for the... I thought, she, I thought when it's all said and done, she wakes up. No, I, I believe... I always... I mean, I always... I mean, unless she watched a different version. There are like 20 bazillion. Versions. I know. And and that part hurts my brain. And I know that Katie, you are the one who schooled me on this. So I'm not even gonna pretend like I knew this all on my own, but it, this had to do with Dracula, right? And Bram Stoker's estate. Yeah. So essentially yeah. as soon as it was like, as soon as Lady uh, Stoker got wind that it was um, <clears throat> even close to trying to be uh, Dracula, she came after it with uh, hearty vengeance, but the they had spent so much 
like on marketing that the company Prana Films who produced it had already gone bankrupt. So they, so she, there was nothing to come after. So she was like, well, if I can't, you know, make money off of it, well, then I'm going to destroy every single copy that ever existed. Um, she did not get all of them, which is why we get it today. But um, listen, she was like, fuck around and find out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and it wasn't the first one. There was a Russian adaptation that came out and you can't, I don't think you can find that anywhere that came out before. Um, and again, it was her being like, uh-uh, like this is my husband's book and I am going to get paid if you're going to take this story. I mean, to be fair, there's no denying that it's Dracula, right? I mean, right. like yeah. as much as it sucks that we lost some of the, you know, like some of the original versions and we're, we're still kind of spinning our heads with all this. I feel like Jackie's Googling whether or not she dies. <laughs> um, well, I get what well, I mean, I, cause it is, it, yes, they do take those major like things from, yes, Jackie. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, for some reason I was remembering when like the spell was broken essentially. And I think in my head, oh, right. I was seeing her get up. Yeah, she, no, she did. Okay. So she dies, but still she saves the day. We'll, we'll call still, it that. Yeah. She, she still saves herself over to save everyone. And yeah. like, that is, I think we talked about this uh, in terms of like, kind of being an ubermensch and being able to be so contented with your life and the Nietzsche vibes that um, we, uh, it, like she was able to give herself in full understanding that everyone would be okay. She is able to transcend standard humanity because of her gift of sacrifice, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. So we can kind of read that she's content in this decision man it makes it hard to villainize the like the anti-feminist undertones there because the idea of a bench i'm like oh <laughs> like how can yeah. i be mad she did she loved what she did and it's true it's like it's so easy to fall and i mean like you're holding your adorable baby in your arms it is so easy to fall into the trope of well i'm just gonna give myself a, you know for others and it's you know how that goes that old trope. yeah but like honestly though for like hutter which is the you know thomas hutter who is clearly it's supposed to be Harker, but what, um, neither here nor there. Quiet, um, boy, you want to get that sued? Kind of a, that guy's kind of a, like, what a, when they what ask a lame him. guy to give your life for. <laughs> how lame. <laughs> so, so true. So true. And the feminist, and no matter how much I do love uh, Nosferatu, I think Shrek's performance is iconic. I think this film plays so beautifully with, like, the Spanish flu plague fears, uh, the fear of the other, all that other kind of stuff that we can certainly unpack. But at the end of the day, I can't, like it gets stuck in my car, you know what I mean? This idea of like, she gives herself up and she ultimately is like the typical sacrificial virgin, you know what I mean? Like, and she, and it, it don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's so beautifully shot, but her death is so all for naught. You know what I mean? Like here she is like taking one for the team, but you know what? Like, see, but I don't, I mean, I, I gotta disagree on that one because she, she, okay, sure. She's a sacrificial lamb, but that's her choice. She, she didn't have, I mean, nobody had the gun to her head. Nobody was like, no one said to her, oh, look, here's what you need to do. She, you know what, what harm can come from reading a book? She picked up the book. She read through the whole thing and she Man. saw that the maiden yep. can do this. And she was like, you know what? Broads, I can, if I can broads, if broads just stopped reading, then right? we'd all be better no, off. No, it was like, it was her, yeah. you know, I think it was her moment of, I can save the world, you know? I don't think she necessarily sacrificed herself for Hutter specifically. I think it was she knew that she 
She could save the world. She could end it. She could end the evil with with her sacrifice. And no one, I mean, there was nobody else there in the room. No one told her to do it. She, of her own volition, was like, yeah, "Yeah, you know what? I'm going to be a bad bitch and I'm going to save the world. I agree with Jackie. I mean, she read she read the book, which was against the wishes of the males in the room. She yeah. did it in Fuck spite yeah. of their protests and with full knowledge of her actions. She took control and made a decision, and that decision was, "I'm going to save my town from the plague." Dude, she's the original Buffy Summers. Okay, this is this is our first vampire slayer. Exactly. <laughs> There's just no Xander to bring her back to life. All right. <laughs> If only, if only she season had one. one. <laughs> if season only. Season two, you got Will, or season six, you got Willow bringing her back. I mean, just <laughs> name a time Buffy dies. You know, I got yeah. you. No, we got, we got our, we got our first vampire slayer and Greta Schroeder. And I that's, loved it. That's fair, yeah. you guys. That's definitely fair. My take on it though is that is it not the sun that ultimately kills him though? But so he's distracted by the beauty, and that's why the sun gets him, right? So, okay. Yeah, I can live with that. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm becoming a softie in my old age, but I can live with your guys' argument. I think that's fair. I just, I feel like it does fall victim to some tropes that I think would later become, would become tropes. Maybe it's a trope before it's a trope. So I don't get to even say that. Yeah. Um, I also love that the, the vampires pug ugly. Like, I think that there are some readings of this that say that it has anti-Semitic undertones, that it has fear of the other, which is problematic. And I think that's all very valid, but I find it fascinating to take a like a, a genre that is usually a subgenre, I should say, that is usually very ingrained in hypersexuality and the the allure of the vampire, right? Bella Lugosi really sets this standard, and from there it just gets sexier and sexier. I'm looking at you, Gary Oldman. But at the end of the day, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but at the end of the day, like fucking Nosferatu is is scary and rat looking and and uh, yeah. You know? yeah. Well, and they had to. What? I mean, they had to certainly make changes to try to differentiate themselves from Dracula. Um, yeah, and, and Schmacula was taken, so. It, yeah. <laughs> it, well, it has a lot to do, so there's two, two pieces to this. First of all, Nosferatu's a nonsense word um, that did not exist before this movie. Love um, a good nonsense word. So some, some, some historians have said that it is a mesh of two Latin words. Other readings say that it's um, the Greek word Nosphorus, translation is plague carrier and then like the idea of a vampire was not foreign it existed before dracula right um just dracula was the very this very famous in like european folklore being rat-like and being a plague carrier those two things were already pretty ingrained in how they understood vampiric entities to be things that took your life force because it wasn't always just blood sometimes it was you know, like, like in what we do in the shadows. Colin, <laughs> Colin, Colin Robinson. Colin, yeah, Colin Robinson. <laughs> oh my God. My God, my favorite, and, and my favorite vampire. And in my vampires. best Colin Robinson moment, let me tell you about the Greek translations of the- <laughs> 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 Oh, that was, I wanted to say this about like, about Caligari and we didn't even get to, because there was the match Shrek, which, okay, so that like, there's the, the whole fake mythology shadow of a vampire thing where he actually was a vampire. Right. And if you actually look at his, like, he, even though he did over a hundred films, like he, the most known thing he did was Nosferatu. So there's like crazy mythology there with him. But like Conrad Veet, who did, who was Cesar in Caligari, he was, he played the man who laughed in right. 
that like in that which was the inspiration for the joker so he was also an icon of a modern villain but he was also the villain in casablanca like the main bad guy in one of the most critically acclaimed movies ever made. And it's like, I feel like outside of, not just the Nosferatu and Cesar made big impacts, but also like Veep and Shrek were equally awesome, like in their own right of being villains of the genre. The movie, see the movie Shadow of the Vampire, mm. because I liked Nosferatu and I like uh, John Malkovich, Shadow of the Vampire comes out and I'm like, well, I absolutely want to see this movie. And I think I love Shadow of the Vampire even more than I love Nosferatu. <laughs> I can't help it. I do. As much as I love Nosferatu, Shadow of the Vampire is, it's just, there's something about it. It's, it's witty. It's kind of factual. <laughs> also kind of not and fantastical. It's just it's a very good movie. I, I totally agree with you. Um, to that point, how do you feel about Werner Herzog's Nosferatu? I haven't seen it. Don't. Okay. <laughs> you haven't seen it, don't. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. And you know me, I'll give anything a fair shake. But yeah, that's that's fair. No, just okay. don't bother. It's, that's going to be a hot take, I think, for a lot of people. But I just think it's so indulgent. And like, I just uh, think it doesn't bring anything worth mentioning to the table. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Like, I just think it's, it's, it, it is what it is. It exists. It's fine. But like, just watch the original, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe that is a hot, hotter take than, than I think it is. Um, yeah. I don't know. With Nostral 2, I find it a fascinating, like, and I'm curious to get your take on this because I think you guys will have really interesting takes on this. I find it to be a fascinating, almost beautifully aesthetic beginning to the male gaze in horror. And I know that's a hot take and I know you're going to have interesting things to say about this, but like, I find that when you're looking at the the, the protagonist and and his his fascination with this woman, which is fair, right? I mean, and and her beauty and all this other stuff, and then the way Orlock kind of sees her, I it, there's something insanely like because I read this article that was like a scathing anti-feminist review that I didn't necessarily agree with altogether because I do think there's a lot of merit to what you guys said about how she chooses this for herself, and there's something very feminist about that. But I think it's interesting to look at like Murnay's choices with the camera and how he frames her and frames the shadows and the light and the way he frames his monster. That is, is it's like the, almost an advent to the male gaze in a very fascinating way that I find kind of pretty for lack of a better term, if that's fair. Well, I would ask you to take those notions uh, that were presented and like look at Caligari and tell me where like are there there's no I don't think Would there's a male the... yeah I don't think there's a male gaze in Caligari I think there's just an artistic gaze that isn't objectifying the woman in any way shape or form because when we first see her you're like yo she ain't okay right like the first time you see her she's clearly like and then when you when you realize that they're an in indecisive I'll be like oh it this it, it adds up it checks out that she oh, wouldn't that I mean she clearly has a lack of like agency uh, or like she's oh, a vacant kind of vapid blob. So For she sure. would that be therefore but Caesar, her as an object and therefore a but Caesar under maybe, the male gaze? I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know. I think that Caligari doesn't do that in that like the only person who really I would argue like well, I guess everybody like objectifies her to some extent, but the camera never does, if that makes sense. Because like the way the camera frames her is no different than the way frames anyone else in the film. So to me, I'm not watching this film as guilty of the male gaze because I don't think that 
she's ever like a symbol of beauty in the way that uh, Ellen, I forget her name, in Nosferatu is. I, I think she's just another character, a very unstable, disturbing image in front of us. I don't think anybody is a figure of beauty in that film. I think everybody's just scary and disturbing. Everybody's got the dark eyes. Everybody's, you know, and, and I think that maybe Caesar is, is enamored with her in, in his, in that moment where he hesitates, which I actually find to be a really cool moment. Cause I'm like, Oh, I think, I think he, he, he has a second where he fights against it. You know, like I find that interesting, but for me, it's a really most- creepy, like all peace moment with the oh combat. yeah i love that moment but it's to me it's as good as the the shadowy vampire up the stairs moment but at the end of the day i think yeah i think that nosferatu kind of is a, a linchpin in this idea of how a camera chooses to frame a woman in a horror film where she's the beauty and versus the beast and i think that that's a trope that will continue to evolve until it finally gets to like the 80s and 90s problematic male gaze that i know you guys don't mind but i do and and i think that in this moment or don't think really exists at all fair fair yep fair. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's totally fair um and and maybe it doesn't exist it's like a you know just like feminism it's just a unicorn that i choose to believe in but at the end of the day i do think there's something to be said about the way these movies frame that woman that's very different to me. I think she's framed for an emotional response the same way anyone would be. And I think like that that's why I asked you to kind of put it up against Caligari in that way, because no, no matter which way we're looking at it, we're always dealing with this. We are focusing on this expressionist take, right? Where the there is an unreality in the reality that is being presented to the audience. And so how the direct Murnau or Veen this wanted us to um, perceive those two different women in the, um, it, I always find it's interesting. They're always in bed, right? <laughs> um, I love that scene in Caligari. The dramatic irony when he's like coming through the window and the slow crawl up to the bed. So cool. Um, and you have kind of the same thing in Minos Pratu coming up the stairs with the shadow and, um, yeah. It's a slow build, but I think it is more artistic than it is full of an objective gender role, I guess, is, is the right way of saying that. Yeah, I, I can I can live with that. I, I, I mean, agree. If, if we're going to talk about, you know, framing and how somebody is shot, I mean, I agree with, uh, I mean, I, I actually agree with both of you that I think, yeah, there is, a, you know, she is the object, you know, she is framed a certain way. But I also agree with Katie where it's, you know, the emotional manipulation of the audience. You know, she is our, she is our damsel and, and what have you. But uh, the same can be said for, for Nos- Nosferatu himself. Like think of all the ways that he was framed and, and his shadows and his close-ups and, and his maneuvers. I mean, we're, if, if we can invent, you know, the, the monster's gaze because the way that, the that you know, he was framed just as, as differently as everyone else, I believe, as she was. So I'm kind of, I'm going to split the difference and I'm going to say that, yeah, I agree that there was a male gaze in it, but I also, I, I think there's more to it than just that because I think there's also the artistic choice and the emotional manipulation of the story. Uh, so I found out something on this watch that like apparently is, I don't know if anyone has ever pointed this out to anybody in the entirety of Nosferatu. Do you know the scene when Hutter is first getting called by like the Renfield character to his desk and he's there's a guy across the desk from him and when he gets called, they both like turn and look at the desk. When you watch that scene, the guy across from him is Nosferatu. It's <laughs> Count Orlock. 
he's got the fingers and the ears and you like it's such a it's a this flyby easter egg that i have never noticed before but it's count orlock across from him and i just was thinking about it when jackie was saying the monstrous days because it's like this weird easter egg thing that Murnau decided to include huh. and I, I think that might be the first time that this kind of like it, it's almost funny the way it's presented because he's dressed up like a clerk just like making sure that Hutter's getting the contract and it's so crazy how many times does Nosferatu blink in this movie oh my god one I'm gonna say none once when the sign what? he blinks once in this movie and I know that because we a couple of years ago it was I was at trivia and it was horror movie trivia and we nailed every single question except that one. We lost on that one. Fun fact, Nosferatu blinks a grand total of once in the whole movie. Okay, Max Shrek is a vampire, I've decided. He actually is. No, in Shadow of the Vampire yeah, was based on actual events. Yeah, and it's a true story. Yeah, Max Shrek. I gotta actually, watch that again, man. He actually ate the script girl. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. I believe it. Um, no, yeah, you're right. I, I, it's such That's a- Why story. they actually ran out of money. What is? Keeping him in blood. Like, I mean, seriously, easy. he gets hungry. <laughs> it's exhausting. There aren't um, a lot of virgins. <laughs> no, come on. Well, I have to say that in my humble opinion, both of these films more than stand the test of time. I think they will continue to be studied in film school and for good reason. I'm super excited that we kicked off our uh, fall of uh, academia with uh, with not only some awesome perspectives and thank you, Katie, for all that, but also mm-hmm. for yeah. what's two freaking absolutely amazing films who never cease to amaze me every time i watch them i fall deeper in love with both of them so anything else though i don't want to cut anybody short we might have missed some stuff um so if i have this correctly it is hutter ellen professor bulver and orlock now what is the guy who plays renfield like the renfield stand in the thing oh crap i don't remember knock i think it sounds right i think it's knock Okay, I last time we talked about this movie, we could not get any of the names. <laughs> we, <laughs> we could not start saying the Dracula version. We did. We'd be like, "Well, Harker, <laughs> yeah, Mina yeah. does this, and Lucy does this." And man, yeah. not not to throw back to Mies on screen because I miss it, but Mies, what what Mies on scene in these films, huh? <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. Let's talk about the mise-en-scene of the... Seriously, <laughs> of both of these films it, blows beautiful. my mind. It is. It's that, just well, beautiful. And I love, I love that in the newer versions, if you're watching on Shutter, they have the old title cards in mm-hmm. Cabinet. Me too. And that it's like, there's, it's so, brings a different life to it than having just the standard title cards because that was the original t- title card or the, I say title cards, but the insert cards as well, the dialogue cards. And um, so like having that brought back, every every res- restoration of these movies makes them better. And it's so, been so fun to see them over the years. And I mean, let's just take a minute to um, Im- acknowledge the fact that both of these are a hundred years old and like they are amazing. It's kind of bananas to think. A movie that is 100 years old is standing up to the test of time. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, well, Katie, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting with us tonight. This was absolutely a joy to have you. Love talking with you guys, you know, and of course, German expressionism, I love, but there's lots of <laughs> stuff doesn't? I love too. 
<laughs> who, who knew that I would be down to clown with German expression? I know. I'm so excited. And make sure because you're a Tim Burton fan. That's true. So you gotta. T- That's true. Tim Burton That's fan. True. Theater major. What's not to love? It all lives. It all lives there. Stick around, everybody, because we will be bringing you more history of horror this fall on Jersey Ghouls as we wax academic. So, Katie, tell us a little bit about where we can find you these days. Well, I mean, you can find me on Instagram at PsychoCC57, but I encourage all of you, um, I will, uh, to visit Dread Imaginings. Um, the featured story of October is Mrs. Carlisle's Ritual Room. This is one of my first fiction published official. So um, again, that's DreadImaginings.com. It's their featured story and it's Mrs. Carlisle's Ritual Room. I cannot wait. All right. So we hope you guys have enjoyed the 1920s again. Next episode, we're jumping to the 30s. Uh, Katie, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. And hey, everybody, check us out on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the socials. Just search for Jersey Ghouls. You'll find us there. JerseyGhouls.com for all the fun and shenanigans. Also, Renegade Film Festival is coming up. You still have time to submit your film filmfreeway.com until the end of this year right Rissa? that's right we're running a special back to school promotion right now so it's a good time to get your film into the renegade film festival and also mr vernon we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole saturday to be here with the jersey ghouls but what we did <laughs> was not wrong because we are the intellect the jokester and the idiot and i'm pointing at myself when i say the idiot just to say my needs clarification there um, <laughs> tropes we would be i'd be the nerd i was always the nerd like brian was always the character i i associated myself most with in the breakfast club what you guys did it maybe maybe ali sheedy's character too uh, yeah i was always ali sheedy's character ali sheedy really or, yeah okay, fair yeah no i was never it's that a sandwich cool. yeah i was gonna say pixie sticks <laughs> on the captain crunch it's, on the peanut butter the- to be fair i would try or that sandwich. also the vodka <laughs> also I, I do love when she throws the bologna and sticks on them yeah just to throw the um no i know my role in life i was a brian i was definitely so all right <laughs> and on that lame note oh, bye-bye bye-bye i'll be to then oh so classy. Oh, she love keeps it. us classy don't you forget about me You're listening to the Geekscape Network.